This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ruslan, today on a special edition of A Bit of Culture, where occasionally we will be looking into subjects in a bit more depth. And so today, because of the World Food Day, we're going to have a conversation about Malaysian food in a bit more detail. Later on, we'll be meeting Pete Tio, who is a musician and a filmmaker who is now a farmer, and he'll be telling us about his farming. But first, we have with us uh, Ku Geik Cheng, who is an associate professor at Nottingham University, Malaysia. And uh, she is in the Faculty of Arts, but she is very multidisciplinary, very interdisciplinary. Although she really focuses on film and television studies, she's also been looking in food in Malaysia. She's already written about uh, kopitiams uh, and mamak stalls. She's written about South Korean community in Malaysia. And also now she's writing, studying about the durian. So I think I got all that wrong, uh, right rather. <laughs> Welcome to A Bit of Culture. Thanks for having me on the show. So I, I want to start off then. Uh, so very interdisciplinary, Faculty of Arts, but you are, clearly have an interest in food in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, well, as a Malaysian, first of all, and maybe even more importantly, as a Penangite, as a Nyonya from Penang. Uh, we're very particular about, about our food, as you probably know if you have friends from Penang. So that's one thing. Secondly, more from an academic perspective, food is a very banal thing. It's, it's something that everybody needs for sustenance, but it's also, and, and also um, the source of joy and pleasure for lots of people. And it's something that we don't theorize, that we don't give any kind of thought about. And food is very political in the way that we think about food as uh, having an identity. It's very much tied to our identity. Uh, it's also about power relations, the kinds of food that some people can eat um, and some people cannot eat and how certain foods uh, can be used to foster relations or to reject people. That's why I think food is very interesting to look at. Well, then let's dive into your present field of research, which is durian. What is it that drawn you to durian and what are you looking for? I think partly I've always been interested in the durian. As a subject of study, uh, this happened some years ago when I was still teaching at the Australian National University. And a a famous anthropologist, Anna Singh, uh, came by and she came to do the uh, the kind of public lecture, the annual public lecture that the Department of Anthropology has. And I was so blown away. She was talking about the Matsutake mushroom. And she asked the question about uh, why, what happens if we were to think about the mushroom as a, a person, right, of, to personify the mushroom and to follow the mushroom uh, on it's uh, uh, following the supply chains. So looking at the mushroom being picked by harvesters in Oregon, uh, harvesters who were actually um, refugees from Southeast Asia. I mean, these were refugees from the Cambodian-Vietnam War, uh, Vietnam. Uh, and then the, ha- the mushrooms being 
being picked not uh, by them as well as being sorted out by agents and then the mushrooms going all the way to Japan where you know it's it was at that time very expensive so it's like buying stocks and shares right so and then she described at some point how the mushroom had different national traits when she talked to the people who, who, who ate them or who picked them. And the Japanese customers would say, oh, Japanese mushrooms smell a certain way. Oh, the American ones have no smell, you know. So, so it's very much tied to uh, nationality. And then because it had a smell, I thought, what would it be like to do that on the durian? And that was many years ago. And then uh, last year, the year before, when there was talk about uh, Malaysia signing this agreement with China to export whole frozen durians to China and how this China market was very, very receptive to Malaysian durian, I started thinking, this is the time, finally. You know, I've, I've cleared the table and I should be doing this. So that's why I'm doing this work. So the supply chain then is... It's long. It begins in a plantation somewhere in Malaysia. The cast of characters there, and it ends in a supermarket, presumably in China. Yeah. What have you? What are the surprises for you that that you've discovered in in studying the supply chain? So, so the the people who export the ideal utopic version for your durian investor is that the China market's going to be huge. Only 1% of the China market is eating durians. And most of the durians they're eating come from Thailand. So right now, you know, the, the market for Malaysian uh, is going to be huge and we can't meet that demand. Our supply is just not enough. So that's why they are looking at huge plantations, plantations that are above 1,000 acres. But what we have traditionally have been small farms and orchards. So the people that I interviewed, I would say, are people who have farms around about 10 acres. Some people have four, uh, and then some people have about 30, and it depends on who they are. And then, of course, they are the, the big players. The small players, they just, they might export, but they don't export the same way as the big players would because you need to have a lot in order to be able to um, you know, get them to the factory. You have to have capital. Uh, and the big players will try to do this in a kind of vertical way. They would try and they would own farms. They would have factories to process the, the fresh durians. And then they would also be able to try and nap the downstream products. So they would turn the leftover durians into desserts and whatnot and sell those or they would uh, pulp the durians and export them, or they would sell the durians that you can't sell anymore um, whole and make them into paste so they can last longer and sell them to dessert shops. So it's huge, uh, but traditionally not many people actually export them because first of all, we haven't been able to fulfill our own markets. We can't supply our own markets. We don't have enough. So like the farmers that we talked to in Penang, most of them just sell locally or across the mainland. And sometimes some of the Penang fruit get to KL and some to Singapore, but usually not because it takes too long and the fruit doesn't last that long. So we're, we're talking about a potential scaling up of uh, an existing 
small scale industry, scaling yeah. it up by magnitudes of, I don't know, several hundred percent, which would change the landscape of Malaysia. And trees take a while to mature and they might well miss the bonanza completely. Oh, they're not afraid of that. That's the thing. Uh, they're looking long term. And I think, yes, they're looking at grafting. So it won't take as long as if you were to grow it you know, from, from the start. Um, so we're looking at maybe five years. And then the first, the first batch won't be that great. So they're not worried. Like even with the MCO, it's affecting them a bit, but it's not affecting them too much because if you're going to invest in a durian and you have to be somebody who knows about the durian, you know that you need about uh, five years to eight years to recoup your capital. But uh, if I can jump straight to the other end of the chain for a moment, China. For China, for the China market, presumably... Durian is a new taste. It's not an established flavor. Yeah. And uh, for Malaysia, has been a trading, Malaya been a trading mm. peninsula and indeed Borneo for you know, centuries, but never really live goods. So air flying these things to China, does China really have a taste for durian? Yes, actually. Yeah. So even, yeah. Because uh, actually most of the farmers that we talk to, the, the, durian, um, the durian industry is actually dominated by Chinese Malaysians. Uh, the ones who've made it big in China uh, have actually been Chinese entrepreneurs. They, they, and if you talk to Malay farmers, you talk to Chinese farmers, they just farm differently. The, the approach towards farming uh, is very different. So the Chinese farmers are willing to, they, they're willing to invest in something. They're willing to take the risk to invest in something with the idea that if you put money into it, then you're going to reap bigger profits at the end. Whereas the Malay farmers stereotypically are maybe a bit reluctant to do that. They'll, be, they'll just take whatever they can and let you know, nature work its course. So, so that's one thing. So the, the Chinese farmers um, have been, well, the, the durian farmers have mostly been Chinese. Uh, and um, the taste, yes, because I think also in the West, there is a market for durians, but a lot of times they are actually Asian buyers, uh, the diaspora, not just Southeast Asian, but also probably Chinese. Well, I know there are a lot of hopes pinned on China. I mean, for instance, I think it is now every single square millimeter of France that can have grapes growing on it now has grapes growing on it for China, uh, especially for like um, brandy. I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Durian will get in on that bonanza too. But can, I, can we leave the Durian for a moment and talk about another aspect of your research, the Kopi the, Tiam the and the Mamak. Food in Malaysia, you've been observing it also in cinema. Um, food in Malaysia is a unifying element in society, or is it actually something that pushes us apart? Because there are many different cuisines that, that different people in Malaysia find actually quite repellent, don't they? Yeah, it can do both, but I'm optimistic in thinking that it can actually unite us. So if if you interview somebody like Darren Teo, he looks at ingredients and how an ingredient, the different ethnic 
groups would use that ingredient. So you can you still use an, ing an ingredient, but you might use it differently, or even a dish. Uh, so let's say you have take the char kway teow, the the rice noodles, fried rice noodles. So Malays also like the way that it's done, but because they cannot have pork, so they just make it their style. So in a way, we share ingredients and we share uh, different food ways and different ways of cooking, or, or rather we, we adapt and we adopt uh, these practices. So it can unite us. Uh, in my book, I talk about how uh, the, the rise of Islamization from the 80s onwards in Malaysia makes uh, Malay Muslims especially much more socially conscious about eating in non-halal places, even though they won't be taking uh, pork or alcohol. There's just the kind of Malay panopticon observing them. <laughs> so they're a bit more reluctant to step into uh, Chinese shops. So my question then is how do you find places where people can come together and eat? Uh, how do you make it open to everybody? And actually in the book, I don't talk about another possibility, which I, I'm trying to do with uh, an article that I still need to get out. And that's on looking at vegetarian places, right? Because if you think about it, vegetarian places, the Hindus will have no problem because there's no beef. And the Muslims will have no problem because there's no pork. You can have all the, the fake meats that you want, except it's fake and it's vegetarian. Right? Well, unless you're lactose intolerant or, or sorry, gluten, gluten intolerant. So, so like, how do you get all the different ethnic, ethnicities to come and eat together uh, in a sensitive way? So maybe vegetarian places. Well, I interviewed uh, Sumit Mandal a few weeks back and uh, talking about um, the history telling that he wants to do. He, he likes to look at these sort of unifying qualities. But I'm wondering sometimes if, if that's uh, a rather forced prism to look through. Do we, mm -hmm. Should we care about unifying qualities? Actually, the other thing isn't so much um, how we can bring people together. But I think in writing the book and in reading the book, I hope people think about why they are driven apart and whether those measures are something that they need to adhere to socially or whether they individually would understand what it feels like to reject somebody's food and for that what would it make the other person feel when their food is rejected so it's those kinds of things that you know i hope people think about it's forced True, like maybe with the vegetarian restaurants, that's what I found that even in something as banal as a vegetarian shop or going vegetarian, it's really difficult to bring people together. You know, once you get a bit of money and you become kind of middle class, you can are able to afford meat. People would turn to protein because you know protein is, is sort of seen as the not a luxury food, but a food that will give you strength and sustenance and all that. People just eat more and more protein these days. And if you look at the vegetarian, like again, we have to break it down because this is Malaysia, right? There's the Chinese vegetarian shop, there's the Indian vegetarian shop, and that's basically it. Now, if you are a Malay Muslim and you see like a, a happy realm Buddha thing in front, you're like, well, I'm not going in there. Mm. <laughs> because it seems like, oh, it's already signifying to me. It's a religion. Mm. So, so that's already a, a setback because again, 
uh, this food that has no meat still seems to come with particular uh, religious signifiers, even if they are not meant to proselytize to you. No. As, as we as we start to to wrap up now, um, can I ask you, in your observations of food consumption and growing, for that matter, in Malaysia, do you feel you've noticed any particular trends or evolutions? Uh, but the way that we are, what we are consuming, and and our tastes. It's hard to say because it depends on the age group you're asking, and yeah, the age group. So I think younger people are. Uh, they turn to trends. They tend to follow trends a lot. So one of my master's students, she's looking at Muslims during our uh, during the MCO this year and what they ate during Ramadan and what they cooked. And a lot of them, if they were not making the usual food or like Muslim, or Malay or Chinese or you know maybe even Indian food or Western food, they were making Korean food, see? So it's, it's about trends. Maybe with older people, there might be a trend of the kind of urban class, hipsters or whatever. Maybe there's also a trend towards eating local much more or eating healthy, mm. healthier. But mm. we live in a very globalized world and Malaysia is very much uh, globalized. So we have all these choices, whether it's uh, international, Asian, or different parts of Southeast Asian, Southeast Asia, we can get Vietnamese food or ayam penyet, you know. So it's hard to say where we're moving in one direction. I don't think it's one direction. So yeah, m- multiple directions, which is the way it's always been. Uh, we, yeah. shouldn't, we shouldn't think that that's any different. So I'm going to uh, yeah. come to an end now, and, and I always end with the same thing. I, I like to ask people if you have a recommendation, something that uh, you think our listeners might be interested in. Uh, Do you have anything? Yeah, my recommendation is to go to a durian homestay uh, or eco. So in in my interviews with some of these small durian uh, orchards, they are sometimes not just uh, solely uh, growing durians, they're also growing other fruits. And the way they survive is when it's not durian season, they're renting out their farms to as a retreat like so people can go for yoga or families can go and there are other fruits that they can have and they're close to nature and the people there would kind of teach them about actually about the environment and nature and eating healthy and stuff like that so look for those there are quite a few in malaysia and a lot of times they're depending on tourists and as you know it's in the time of COVID 19 tourism is not going to be uh, easy in Malaysia. So I think if, if anything, we should have Chuti Chuti Malaysia and support our uh, local tourist economy that way. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. Well, thank you. So that's, uh, that's go uh, find homestays uh, with especially the durian growing yeah. homestays. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, uh, Ku Gek Cheng. Thank you so much for joining us on our, our special World Food Day bit of culture. Uh, and good luck with the durian research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Kamf. Thank you. And in a moment, we'll be back with, uh, he is a filmmaker and a musician, and now he's a farmer, uh, PTO here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, and now we have a special guest in our uh, special edition of A Bit of Culture, where we're looking at food, 
uh, for World Food Day. He is a musician, filmmaker, and now a farmer, and he is Mr. Pete Tio. Hello, hello Pete. everyone. Hello, hello. <laughs> so Pete uh, and his wife have a farm up in Jandabai, which is just below Genting Highlands. And uh, well, Pete, t tell us about your little farm on the hill. A uh, little farm on the hill. We have six acres of farm. It's, it's quite small by farm standards. Uh, we grow about 30, 40 different crops. We supply mainly to restaurants. We don't do supermarket. We don't do retail. And we have a restaurant on site as well. So we are a farm to table restaurant as well as a farm. And how long have you been farming now? I've been farming for over seven years. I mean, part-time and full-time, you know, I mean, I still do film, I still, you know, do music, but, you know. Well, because Jondabai is, I don't know, what, half an hour from KL? About 45 minutes, depending where you're from, but I, was, I tell people it's 45 to 45 minutes or now. Right. Now, before you started farming up there, had you any experience in your family history, uh, you and your wife, any experience in farming at all? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> When we first started the farm, I, I couldn't tell you what compost was. Um, I couldn't tell you what, what anything was, really. So we started from zero, basically. It's just an idea of, of wanting to leave the city and, 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 and have a different sort of life. You know, I mean, other people say, you know, it's, it's, it's like planning for the last third of your life. And that's how we were thinking about it. You know, in the last third, what do you want to do? And uh, we thought, well, let's, let's slow down and maybe have a farm. Uh, thinking back, it was quite naive, of course, because you, we didn't know anything about farming. But, you know, so we had to learn from scratch. So how did you learn? Uh, read a lot, talked to some farmers and, and, and watch and Google and, and, and YouTube. Like most, like how most people learn things nowadays, you know. Um, it's not that difficult. I've always felt that, I've always, you know, felt that I could learn anything I wanted to, if I really wanted to learn it, because, you know, one was literate and numerate and that's enough and uh, you could if you spend enough time uh, um, on it uh, you could learn anything really and and obviously you got internet up in uh, john dubai as well correct yeah without internet <laughs> this couldn't happen <laughs> <laughs> now pete for, for for this show i'd really like to find out two things one is i think that a really good way to understand the nature of the culture of Malaysia, the way that people live in Malaysia, it's important to understand the soil, the earth itself, what it can and cannot do. And then also, secondly, then to talk about uh, perhaps the economics of farming. Mm -hmm. So you've uh, learned through trial and error, presumably, about farming. What have you learned about the, the soil of, uh, well, maybe Jandabai or maybe the, the whole peninsula? Well, the soil as a concept, I think, you know, in, in terms of as, as a, an element in civilization, in society is hugely important. I think um, you could start with just what's in the soil and what we grow on it. Um, it's a vast field. I mean, you can start with farming and you can end up in global warming. Uh, you'll find that the soil is uh, the, the, one of the best sequester of, of carbon on earth. And one of the reasons why we have global warming is because modern agriculture has destroyed the soil over a hundred years and we have global warming. So you can, you can start in farming, just growing vegetables and making food. You can end with essentially the survival of, of the planet. But the soil that you have in your little six acres, what, what, I mean, is there soil or is it just earth, Tanamera, or is there actually organic 
soil to be had there. Is this a fertile land? Most land, I think if you, uh, we, we live next to jungles and, and if you go into the jungle, the, the land is, is fertile because it's got a million years to build up your topsoil. I think, you know, uh, where we are, um, it was where we are, it is mainly um, clay. And that's not great to grow on. But on top of the clay, normally you find a few inches of topsoil. You know, any four, six inches of topsoil, and that's fertile. So it really depends on what you do to the topsoil. I mean, you, you normally would have topsoil most of the time. I mean, in the city, you wouldn't get it because it was, the first thing that the developers come in to build your housing is that they, they take the topsoil away. So that's one of the reasons why it is really quite hard to grow stuff in your backyard in the city because your soil is not good enough. And you obviously, I mean, you live permanently on your six acres. You're not slash and burn farmers rotating and moving around the jungle. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, put organic material back into your soil? Do you go and buy um, Monsanto, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> and just pump it into the soil? Or do you, are you doing something else? No, we don't do that at all. We, we, we make about a, between one to two tons of compost a month. And every time we replant, about 30% of the volume of the planting bed is replaced with new compost or added to. Yeah, new compost are added to it. Uh, so when we first started, it was the soil wasn't frankly very, very good and it's very hard to grow stuff. And we needed to improve the soil. And over seven years, I mean, you know, we just keep adding compost. And now our soil is wonderful. I mean, we can grow pretty much anything. And uh, the compost, just to be clear, is... Uh, this is from the waste from your own uh, plants, etc. Yes, it's the waste from our kitchen. It's uh, grass clippings, fallen leaves, you name it. Anything that's waste, we compost it. We don't compost meat. We don't compost protein because it attracts vermin, uh, like rats and things like that. So we don't, we don't compost protein, but we do compost almost everything else. So this is something that you're, you're keen on doing. You want to do. This is a, perhaps a political decision on your part because... Other farmers who perhaps have larger areas, maybe they're growing uh, rubber or what have you. Is this an option that's open to other people? Because the Malayan ground needs fertilizer. Um, yes, I think if there was political will, everybody could do it. I mean, composting can be done at a sort of household backyard you know, level, household level, uh, all the way to industry level. I mean, and many, to their credit, many sort of, uh, palm oil industry players already do composting. They turn their palm oil waste uh, into compost, and that's quite quite common now. Um, the issue with compost making in Malaysia is not so much we don't make enough compost. I mean, there are many people who want to make compost at the industry level or at the private household level. Uh, the issue rather is there's like a distribution problem. I mean, once you make your compost, how do you encourage people to use compost in their backyard and so on? And how do you encourage, for example, restaurants to send their waste to composting facilities or to farmers to be composted? Uh, the larger issue is that you have a lot of waste going into landfills and, and, and that contributes to, to global warming too, because mm. of course that, that ends up being methane, which is mm. obviously one of the chief things that's uh, resulting in gro uh, global warming. Well, let's talk about the, the, the ground then. So you've, you've composted and you've made the ground fertile. What have you discovered that you can grow with ease? And are these the, the traditional 
vegetables that we would all see in Malaysian food? Uh, you can grow pretty much, um, I wouldn't say everything, of course it's not. I mean, everything that requires winter, like potato, you couldn't grow. But uh, everything else you could sort of grow. I mean, it, it, it really only depends on the mix of the soil in the sense that if you, if you grow tropical plants that are native to our country, the tolerance for, for um, you know, wetness in the soil is very high and uh, you know, water retention in the soil is very high. So they could live with a lot of rain, they could live with boggy sort of type condition, clayey type soil they grow out of, that's no problem. But for example, if you, want to, if you wanted to grow say basil, which is really a dry weather plant, um, if you plant it in your back garden into clay, it frankly just drowns. It, it doesn't live, it drowns because the water, because clay is so dense that water sits in it, it doesn't run away. So essentially the, the, the plant essentially drowns. Now, if you wanted to do that, then obviously you, you, you would have good soil to start with, uh, good sort of rich, loamy soil to start with, and then you might add some sand to it, for example, to help it drain. Um, so whenever rain comes or you water it, it drains really quickly. So that sort of, you know, that sort of allows you to sort of grow dry weather plants too. You, uh, once upon a time, had great trouble trying to grow tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Have you uh, since succeeded in growing tomatoes? And what is the problem with growing tomatoes here? Uh, the problem with growing tomatoes, in, not in Malaysia, but in the whole of Southeast Asia, is that there is, there is a bacteria in, the, in our soil uh, that frankly kills it. Uh, it's, a, it's a disease called bacterial wilt. And it, it, you have a perfectly healthy plant and, you know, once it starts growing fruit, uh, you die within a two or three days. You, you find it sort of wilting a little bit on the first day. On the second day, it's wilt, wilted a, a bit more. And then on the third day, it's dead. So this is something that, you know, there's no cure for it right now. Um, so we really wanted to grow tomatoes because, you know, we, we love tomatoes. <laughs> and... Uh, I found out that the problem was this, this bacteria from a sort of 1960s uh, University of Malaya research, actually buried deep within the internet. Um, and then the solution came to me because they said, well, if it's a bacteria, then you can just actually pasteurize your soil by heat. Uh, if you heat it up to, I mean, the bacteria dies sort of above 60 degrees Celsius. So you just got to sort of heat the soil up for 60 degrees. And what we did, the easiest thing and cheapest thing for us to do was to, to, to buy a steamer. You know, one of those roadside steamers that they steam pow. Mm -hmm. You know, we bought one of those and put trays of soil into it. And we steamed it and then we put it in the, into the pot, into the growing pot. And then we grow tomatoes out of it. And it's really successful. It's fantastic. They loved it. And the tomato grew and we had harvest and harvest tomatoes. But, you know... Uh... <laughs> Economically, scaling that up, each tomato would have to cost like a hundred bucks, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, commercially, it will not be economic to do, of course. Hence, you find most of the tomatoes that are grown in Malaysia is grown out of water, uh, or they are growing very specific um, cultivars, variety that is resistant, more or less resistant to, to those diseases. Um, but we wanted to, you know, I mean, there are like 700 varieties of tomatoes in the world. And, and some of the most good tasting ones are not the ones that are resistant to any disease or, or they can't be grown out of water. Mm. And when you grow something out of soil, it tastes better anyway. So 
And at a little farm right here, we are foodies, you know, we, we want everything to taste good. So it's really important to grow out of soil. So we insisted uh, in growing things out of soil. The model of steaming your soil would not be feasible for most commercial farmers, not in this country. I think well, in the West you could, because there are people, contractors, if you like, who would come and actually pasteurize your soil, steam your soil for you every season before you plant. Wow. And that's actually a service that's available in America and in some parts of Australia. Wow. Now let's talk about economics. Now you are not a traditional farmer, but you do now, I think, understand the plight of the farmer in Malaysia. And um, you, do you make money? If you don't mind. Yeah, asking. yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the first things that we decided before we built a farm was that it must be financially sustainable. I mean, we're not rich, so we can't just throw money at it forever. Um, so but is this, sorry, is this with just the growing of the plants? Because you also have the, the, the restaurant. The restaurant. When you combine the two, is it? We have to combine the two. I think what you tend to find is that in the world, and it's not a problem that's, that's unique to us. I think in the world, most small farms are closing down uh, for the same reason that you said, uh, you know, we just don't have the economics of scale to compete with the bigger farms uh, for price. Now, vegetables looked upon by the market as a commodity. So, you know, so there isn't really much price differentiation between, between growers. It's just a generic commodity. Um, and most small farms are closing down as a result of that. Uh, and those who survive tend to do one, of, one or two things. One is they specialize. Say, for example, if you grew wasabi, which costs more than gold on a weight basis, uh, if you have the right weather or the water condition and, and climate condition to grow wasabi, it's very, very lucrative. But that's a very specialist product. Or you do the other thing, number two, which is uh, you diversify your earning stream. So, for example, in smaller farms now all over the world, you find a restaurant sitting in a farm. Or they make cake or they make jam or, you know, they, they go down the value chain to improve their margins. Um, we do a bit of both. We are specialists in the hotel trade and rather the restaurant trade. So that means what we grow are specially tailored to, the, to chefs. Uh, rather than a supermarket. Uh, so that makes us a little bit of a specialist. Uh, but, and at the same time, we also have a restaurant on site. But also every mile that you, you get further away from Kuala Lumpur, the great metropolis, uh, you would become less and less economically viable. I mean, you are, as you say, 45 minutes away. If you were two hours away? I, I couldn't do this. No, you're right. If I was two hours away, this model would not work. It would be... It would be it would have to be very different. I mean, I would probably have to do a lot more preserves, jams, you know, dried goods, dried herbs, stuff that they will keep, and then stuff that I could bottle or pack and then sell in shops in KL. I couldn't do a restaurant. The, the vegetables that we buy in the, the supermarkets or that are used in the restaurants where we, where we eat, uh, they're, they're coming from India, they're coming from China, Australia, the Netherlands, these are coming from places where you have an economic of scale. Yeah. I mean, really industrial yep. uh, size farming, but then also they, they can be transported. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is, is there any way, I mean, you have situations, there's Genting Gardens, there are the salad yep. people up in Genting, yep. but then also, I don't know if you've been to um, 
Cameron Highlands. Yep, I am. And and what are they doing there? Uh, they're growing uh, at sort of large scale too. I mean, it's not as big as Holland. Holland's the biggest in the world. But um, here we have small contract farmers. We have big, you know, organic farmers, commercial, sort of conventional farms and so on. I mean, it's a big business. And the, the production is, is, is on a fairly large scale. Um, yeah, so it does happen. I mean, it's totally different from what we do, though. I mean, hmm. um, it, most of the commercial organic farm um, are essentially no chemical farm. And no chemical farm does not necessarily mean you're organic in my book. It simply means you don't use chemicals. But if you want to use the term organic, it really is to do with the ecology in your farm, on your land, to do with the, the health of your soil, the health of your surrounding, the birds and the bees and the worms. But that's um, going to cost. That's going to cost. Absolutely. And th therein, therein lies the conundrum, I suppose. I mean, if you think about the problem of food production in the world, um, the proper way to do farming, if you're you know, sort of doing the organic way to do farming, where you're looking after the environment, looking after the ecosystem, uh, stewarding properly your land, uh, will not solve the food production issue in the world. It will not solve the world hunger problem. That has to come from the industrial scale farms. Uh, so the big problem right now is how to convert industrial scale farming uh, into something that's, uh, that doesn't uh, uh, destroy the ecology. Can that be done? Oh, yes, of course it can. Of course it can. I mean, the technology exists. Um, and, I mean, if you talk about, for example, hydroponics, hydroponics, is, it, it solves the, the commercial farming problem in many ways. One, of course, is that it is, oh, it's scientific. It's very technical type of farming, and it can go vertical. One of the biggest problems in farming right now is that the footprint it occupies is big and we don't have enough space for it. And, and the more you, you clear forest to do farming, the, the, the worse the earth gets, um, the, the worse your impact on the environment is. You don't have to clear the forest to husband cattle in order for it to be bad for the environment. You could clear the forest just to plant rice to be equally bad for the environment. You know, if you just clear 100 acres for one crop, it's just bad for the environment. So you, you can't do that no more. I mean, what, the future must not look like that. The future must look vertical. It's almost like you look at it as like a condominium. You occupy an acre, but you go up 45 stories. So you don't occupy a lot of footprints. Now, that technology of growing that way exists. We do. Uh, but you just said that uh, stuff tastes better when it's grown in soil. So would you willingly mm -hmm. eat, eat uh, purely hydroponic food? As a... As an Epicurean, no, I would prefer not to because I, I do like the, the stronger taste of vegetable grown in soil. And herein lies the sort of the conundrum, as I said just now, which is in the future, you're going to have essentially two types of farming. One, uh, which is the sort of mass produced farming, which is done essentially for nutrition, you know, keep you living. Yeah. And then there are small farms like us doing the stuff that we do, growing, insisting on growing on soil which will become a luxury. I mean, we're not a cheap farm to come and eat. I mean, I'll be the first one to admit it. All right. Well, yeah. uh, we're, we're coming to the end now. And um, so I just want to ask you quickly, though, before we leave, uh, how has uh, MCO COVID-19 been for you? Uh, as with everybody else, I suppose, I mean, because we're a farm, 
uh, we're essential service. So in theory, we shouldn't be affected that badly. But unfortunately, we were also one of those farms that uh, specialized in restaurants. And <laughs> all the restaurants were closed in the uh, for most of this year. So we didn't have much income. So we started doing a lot of deliveries that tie us over. And then when the, when the business came back about three months ago, um, what we found was that the business was better than ever. That people were just, you know, dying to get out of the city, coming out to the countryside, fresh air, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, so we were pretty much fully booked every day uh, for a couple of months. Right. Um, and then now it happened again. So, you know, so we got, just got to hold on tight and, and, and wait for it to blow over. So uh, when things do blow over, how can people find out about, about you and the Little Farm on the Hill? I'll just go to the website, littlefarmonthehill.com, or drop us an email. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we of course have a, have a website. So uh, last thing, uh, I, do, I ask this of everybody, and I'm just going to drop this on you because I didn't warn you about this. Uh, we always ask people to give a recommendation, to recommend something they think might be of interest. It does not have to be connected to what we've been talking about, book, play, film, etc. cetera. Uh, uh, do you have anything, Pete? To recommend to us? Yes, I do actually. And I mean, right now, one of the things that I'm really excited about is the food scene in Kuala Lumpur. Um, not just what we're doing here, but a lot of young chefs out there in KL are starting new restaurants and doing new things to cuisine. That is really exciting. And, and, and it sort of broadly uh, is centered on the idea that we should use more and more local produce. And I'm totally, totally supportive of that. On the farm, we do exactly the same thing, which is that if you look at our ingredients, uh, when we first started like five years ago, uh, there's a lot of imported ingredients and that's like reduce, reduce, reduce. Right now, maybe about 30%, 25% of our ingredients are imported. We're increasingly using more and more local stuff and supporting local craft and local artisans. Um, so I think that's, that's really important to, to go into as a society, as a community. And as a result, um, have a lot of young chefs who has the same philosophy, who are developing their cuisine. They may have cooked in dotty restaurants, you know, high-end fine dining dotty restaurants, uh, what I call tweezer food. That's how they started their career. Mm -hmm. uh, doing French cooking, doing Italian cooking, whatever it is, very high-end sort of foreign cooking. And they adapted that skill and experience to using local ingredients and coming out with cuisine, which is really a, a sort of fusion of that sort of European technique and local ingredients, which I find absolutely fascinating. And, and, and I find examples? Dewakan is one. They are now, last year, they just won, uh, uh, they are one of the top 50 restaurants in Asia now. Dewakan, D-E-W-A-K-A-N, Dewakan, uh, Chef uh, Darren Teo. He's extremely talented, he's extremely good. The restaurant is extremely interesting, uh, uh, but that's very fine dining, extremely expensive. Uh, at the other end of it, you have you know, more streets, more sort of approachable, more sort of neighborhood restaurants like uh, Amber, we're doing the same thing. Amber in Tamantun, E-M-B-E-R. Um, Chef Gary Anwar, he's extremely talented, same philosophy, same training, you know, so in, in high-end European restaurants. And then coming back around, doing some very approachable food with local ingredients. Very simple, very tasty, very good. So there's like a movement in the whole sort of in certain parts of the culinary scene in Malaysia. 
uh, where younger chefs are now having a sort of philosophy that's slightly different, wow. then that is no longer cool just to be, I want to have a French restaurant. It's now cool to say, look, you know, I know, I know all this technique. I'm Malaysian. We have a thousand years of culinary history here and ingredients. Why aren't we using it? Mm-hmm. We should be using it because it's cheaper. The carbon footprint is lower. Um, and it's tasty too. It's some, you know, and so on. So, uh, so no, no reason why you can't do that. So a lot of young chefs are doing exactly that. I, I find that extremely exciting. I find it really, really interesting. So, uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Pete Tio. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, everybody. And also, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Ku Gek Cheng, who we spoke to earlier. And uh, this has been uh, A Bit of Culture, our special World Food Day episode. And please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.